Don't pay retail for your diamond engagement ring or gift. Come to CleanOrigin.com. Founded by a leading family in the diamond industry for more than a century, we're experts in lab-grown diamonds because that's all we do. Clean Origin, the only diamond jewelers who give you a 100-day, no-questions-asked return on your purchase. Head to CleanOrigin.com or one of our retail stores and mention code RADIO10 for 10% off your purchase. That's CleanOrigin.com, code RADIO10. Everybody at the station knew what I was going through and they were just so supportive, but it was like another family. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening, a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man Listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Many moons ago in a prior life, I used to work with today's guest, Virginia Stern, who goes by Ginger now who is a breast cancer survivor, a very brave woman, an accomplished woman, was a director uh, in television, which means she punches the buttons. Camera three, two, one. Um, it's, a, it's a high pressure situation, but uh, she's a self-described uh, Jewish American redneck from Opelika, Alabama and second generation and her father escaped the Holocaust to start a life there. Fascinating, fascinating story of growing up Jewish in the South. Uh, my friend Virginia Stern. Where were you born? Opelika, Alabama. Where the hell is that? An hour and a half north of Atlanta, Georgia, right next to Auburn. Well, not exactly north of Atlanta, Georgia. It's got to be no, south of Atlanta. South of Atlanta. Yes. South of Atlanta. Kind of south southwest. Yeah, correct. So yeah. you do that by n- not telling people its proximity to Phoenix City, Sin City. It's about six hours from Charlotte because I used to do that drive all the time. You're right next to Auburn, but most people yeah. don't know where Auburn is. Yeah, they do. War Eagle. Oh, please. I've been hanging around too many Bama fans. Ugh. I went to school at Alabama for one semester. Partied my brains out. And why did you leave Alabama? Because I partied my brains out. My, parents, <laughs> my, first, year, my first year I went to, when I graduated from high school in 1980, I knew I wanted to get out of Opelika. Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, which is an all-girls school. Because my parents wanted me to be around other Jewish girls. Was it a Jewish which, girls school? No, 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 no. It's just, it had a lot of, it's a private. Stevens is the last great finishing school of the South. So, I mean, one of the girls on my suite brought her horse because it was a big riding and all that kind of stuff. I always knew I wanted to go into television, but you had to be a junior or senior to even touch the equipment. So I got involved in, was a little sister to a Jewish fraternity which and one? I was in a Jewish fraternity. AE Pi or ZBT? AE Pi. Okay, I was my a brother ZBT. Was I was a Z. I was on the. My brother was. I was the Goy Affirmative Action Program. But Stevens was so far away, and my grades weren't that great, so my parents said, "Uh uh-uh. uh," and that's when I went to Alabama for a semester, partied my brains out, and my dad said, "We're bringing you home. You don't want an education." So I worked for a year at a cotton brokerage here in Opelika, Alabama, um, with the tickets from when they'd sell bales of cotton. I would work there during the day and I paid my way 
to a junior college for a year. And finally, mom and dad said, well, maybe you do want an education. And I went to the University of Montevallo, which is a liberal arts school. It's about 45 minutes south of Birmingham, Alabama. And their mass comm television production was incredible because the faculty, we had a bread truck that was a remote truck and they'd take us and the faculty would help us set it up. Then they'd go drink a beer and we'd do TV productions. So we would record marching band contests and we did newscast five nights a week and we would do music videos and they just, it was a good hands-on experience. And I was able to get a job a week and a half after I graduated from Montevallo. Oh, congratulations. Lorraine, Texas. What is it like growing up Jewish in the deep South in a little it was, town? It was interesting. Well, see, I'm only half Jew. I'm what's called a med Jew. My mom was Methodist and my dad was Jewish. But we went to Temple. Did you have a bat mitzvah? I did not. It wasn't a big thing back then. Did you go Girls to really Temple? How often? In Columbus, Georgia. How often did away. you go? While my brother was studying for his, my brother had a bar mitzvah. And we would go every week up until I was like in the 10th grade. We'd go every Sunday. That does not Funny seem story. fair. It does not seem fair. He gets a party and you do not. I didn't want to study and learn all the Hebrew. And it, the funny story is, being from a small town, when my brother was studying for his bar mitzvah, both my parents worked. My dad did real estate and was with the Chamber of Commerce. And my mom was an art teacher. And part of the, but mitzvah, the bar mitzvah, my brother had to conduct the service in Hebrew. And mom and dad couldn't take him to Columbus every week. So in the town of Opelika, the only person that knew Hebrew, he would go to the Catholic priest and he helped my brother study for his bar mitzvah. He knew the so Hebrew. The priest knew the Hebrew. Exactly. That's what it's like growing up in a small town in Alabama. It's a when you're studying for your, yes, when you're studying for your bar or mitzvah, you get the Catholic priest to help. And how old were you and in what way did you experience anti-Semitism? We were kind of lucky because um, our mother was an art teacher. So she was around the school system and she was very instrumental. Whenever they would do a Christmas program, we would have a Hanukkah program. And I did, well, I'm trying to remember what grade it was. I want to say it was like in the third grade. I don't know why I remember this so well. I was eating lunch and I was eating English peas, for God, I remember. And a girl came up to me and said, you don't believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord, our Savior, and you're damned to eternal hell nation. And I just kind of looked at her. I didn't know what to say. But the principal was a good friend of my mom's, and he kind of got me out and sat me down until somebody talked to her. I don't know whatever happened. So. She was and disappeared. Then she was disappeared. <laughs> I'm sure she was educated, but I don't think she was. And then at Montevallo, uh, such a Southern Alabama school, one of my sweet mates, when I said I was Jewish, she wanted to see my horns. <laughs> Seriously? Was she serious, serious or was she? 100% serious. She said I'd never met a Jew before. She'd never met a Jewish person before. 
And so. did do you think that she like gleaned anything, learned anything from that experience? Oh, yeah, a thousand percent. She saw that you know Jewish people were were normal people. We weren't with horns on our heads and all that kind of stuff. So it was interesting growing up in the South. You've also got to remember, Stuart, being in such a small town of Opelika, I went to catechism school. I went to the Baptist Vacation Bible School. I went to my mom's Methodist church. We had a well-rounded religious education growing up. So we would do um, one gift at Hanukkah, and then we still had Santa Claus come to visit. So it's not like we were hardcore Jewish. I mean, we're in Opelika, Alabama, for God. And dad would always say his blessing whenever he would cook barbecue. Born a pig, raised a pig, now a cow. Dig in. <laughs> that was his blessing. <laughs> that was his blessing when he would do Boston. But... It, was like the, it was like the opposite of kosher. It was like he pronounced it okay. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Oh, I, I have fraternity brothers that that would, I have a fraternity brother who moved from Texas to Brooklyn, had an arranged marriage, became ultra conservative, orthodox, and um, had like six kids. And, and I was like, wow, wow. Talk about, a, you know, just like a reformation, just like. Absolutely. After I moved back, um, I've been traveling some, and I went with my mother's church, the Methodist church to Israel. And then we have a cousin on dad's side who's lived over in Israel. She's from Aniston. She's lived there for 20 years. So I had nine days with the Christians. I got three days with the Jewish aspect of Israel. So it was nice to have that well-rounded, balanced trip. Yeah. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. At this point, what do you, what do you take away from Judaism? Like, what does Judaism mean to Virginia Stern? To be honest with you, I'm not that religious of a person. I, I believe in God. I don't believe you have to go to church or a temple to be religious. I mean, it's all within of of how you perceive God. So, I mean, people, you know, I don't know. I don't know what to say. I have I have menorahs on all the doors, and I wear my Star of David. So why do you it, wear a it star means something David? to me? Because it's pretty, Stuart. Well, but it also talk to me about your family's position. You know, historically, and Daddy was on the last boat the German government allowed to leave before the start of the Holocaust and came to Opelika, Alabama at the age of five in 1937. And we traveled back to Germany and visited the house dad was born in. And it was interesting because there were still people in this small town of Warburg who remembered the Jewish family when, that left and they never knew what happened. So that was kind of interesting to go back and have them see that we succeeded and did well. How did they greet you when you guys show up as adults? They were fabulous. They like hugged on dad and the people that lived in the house. He was born in, invited us up, had us for tea. Dad said he remembered 
some of the rooms and everybody was just extremely nice. It was surprising. How many members of his family made it out and what happened to those who did not? His grandmother died in, I, I think it was, I don't think it was Auschwitz. I can't remember which concentration. There were six of them that came over and there were some other relatives that had already come over. We had an uncle, Uncle Julius, that came to the States. And what he would do originally is he would buy merchandise in New York and go on the train down in New Orleans and sell them at different places. And Opelika was one of the places. And he just fell in love with the town. And he had a cousin who had a Hagedorns in Anniston, Alabama. But he just came to Opelika. And Uncle Julius and Aunt Amelia couldn't have children. So they kind of adopted the family and built a house for him. It was three doors down. No, it was half a block away from where they lived. Wow. Yeah. And it so was, how many of cold. the family were, were lost in the camps? I don't have an exact number. I know there were quite a bit, but that was the interesting story about dad that the TV station where we both worked, WCNC did, um, dad went on the website, Yad Vashem, and that's a database where you can find out what happened to your relatives. I think it's based out of Jerusalem. When I went to Israel, I was able to actually go see it, but you could put in your relative's name and find out what happened to them. And when it first went live in, I want to say it was 92, Dad went online and put in his grandmother's name and it popped up. There was a cousin, Dad thought he died in the Holocaust. Then Dad got his name and information and was able to call him and he lived in Durham, North Carolina. And Fred and his family, Fred escaped to Holland for the war. Then after the war went to Israel, uh, married his wife Ingrid and then they moved to New York and had children. But it was, I'm trying to remember the relationship. Dad's grandmother was Fred's aunt. So they were like, what is that? Second, third cousins? Second cousins. Second cousins. And um, dad and his sister, Laura, flew up to Durham to meet Fred and his wife for the first time. And they were able to reunite. And before Fred passed away, um, Fred and Ingrid came to Opelika and were able to meet my parents here and see Opelika. So that was kind of cool. And I remember when just this perfectly wonderful, wonderful features reporter, friend of mine, Mike Redding, documented that. And right. it was stunning. Uh, the reunion, the reconnection, the, you know, the echoes of history and the, a sense of, you know, something coming together. Of, it was so meaningful, so terribly and meaningful. And now someone in Opelika, a friend of ours, Jim Harris, has written a musical based on all of that. The history of Opelika and interesting fact about my little town Opelika, most people don't know is there was actually a German prisoner of war camp here in Opelika and the guards would come over and practice their German with grandparents. So in the play, 
there's some poetic license tying all that together, but it's got like different landmarks of Opelika, like Haney's Drugstore and the POW camp and different things like that. But it also ties in Mike's story of dad going to meet a cousin. So it's, it's pretty neat. It's supposed to, it was originally presented as a table read as part of the uh, Appalachian Playwrights Festival in Abingdon, Virginia. And they did it two years in a row. And the second year, it was the only production of the eight they did that received a standing ovation. And they were all prepared to mount it into full production and COVID. Uh, what's the name of it? Will Meet Again by James Harris. And the music is by a famous uh, composer, Mark Hayes, who's done a lot of different music. James Harris, Jim Harris, is from Opelika. His mother grew up here, and he would spend, he lives in Nebraska. He's an attorney, but he's also a playwright. He wrote a musical called Voices of the Civil War, which is about letters he found his grandfather had written to his grandmother. And he read, he uh, wrote all that into a musical play. And so it premiered at the Savannah Theater originally. And then it went, I think it even made it to Off-Broadway. And Jim heard about the story with dad. Um, uh, a friend of ours, Kate Larkin, her daughter in high school, wrote dad's original story, the history. And I showed that to you guys at work. You were one of the main ones that when you read that story said, this is amazing. Give it to Mike. And I showed it to Mike. And because of the connection of Durham, they were able to do it as part of crossing the Carolinas. Other people have tried to tell that story and it was not as effective as Mike in part because he took, he's very talented, but he also took the time. It took a long time to track this. And that's something that's... I think largely lacking, particularly in local television news, is that you don't have the time to do a feature story well, properly. And to make something like the the Holocaust, which is a hard story, but Mike, you know, did such a wonderful job. Because like the first quote out of my dad's mouth, which is both the credit to dad and to Mike to use it, his dad said, I'm a redneck from Alabama. <laughs> and then Fred, who's the cousin he formed, still has the thick German accent. Oh, I thought he said because a redneck in Jew. Europe. I thought he said I'm a redneck Jew. He didn't? He just said I'm a redneck. He might have. I thought it was just I'm a redneck from Alabama. Maybe I'm misremembering. I'll go back or, and or maybe I'm thinking about some friends of mine who call themselves redneck Jews. Which is is really uh you know it's well, it's, no, a, it's a jarring kind of a thing. Well, speaking of jar, that's the other thing. I always I would always say I'm not a jab, a Jewish American princess. I'm a jar, a Jewish American redneck. Love it because I drove a pickup truck all through school. I love it. You could start a club, Virginia. There I, are a few of us. What's your favorite Yiddish expression? What do you find yourself using most? Either oy vey or mashugana. Mish- I say oy vey a lot. Mashugana meaning? Cuckoo crazy. <laughs> I heard it a lot more in Charlotte 
than I hear in Opelika, Alabama. So yeah, it's good stuff. It's practically, you know, yeah. they say some words are funnier than others. So stand-ups work on funny words. And if you have exactly. Yiddish, you've got a, you've kind of got a leg up, you know. Gold mind, it's a gold mind. Yeah, absolutely. Hence the Borscht Belt humor and all that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And not taking yourself too seriously. Why do you think that there's so many, there's such a rich tradition of comedy uh, among Jews, whether it's Borscht Belt or, or, or film or whatever? I think a lot of times when you, when you, things are hard and I mean the Holocaust and stuff like that, you kind of have to, if you don't have a sense of humor and laugh, I'll just get you through the hard times. Absolutely. Yeah. How have you gotten through COVID, Virginia? I've been, knock on wood, I've been blessed. I, um, I, to be honest with you, I think I had it before every, anybody, it was really out. A friend of mine, gosh, had been on a cruise in China. He got back Thanksgiving and we had dinner twice in December of 18 or 19, 19. And, and I was sick for three months and lost like 40 pounds. And it was before COVID came out that March. So I think I had it early. I've had my shots. I've had my boosters. So I've been lucky. Didn't you have cancer? I had breast cancer. It was called triple negative breast cancer. What is that? Triple negative means most cancer cells, there are three different estrogen, progesterone, or something called HER2. And in a triple negative, none of those are present. If at least one of them is present, they can do like hormone therapy. But with none of those three present, um, I had to have six rounds of chemo and 36 rounds of radiation. Oh my. I was blessed. They found it on my very first mammogram I'd ever had at the age of 50. Yeah. So it was, it was stage one and they were able to do a lumpectomy on me. And um, they actually told me I had breast cancer on my mother's birthday. I was, a friend of mine had passed away in, um, which was 49 and I went to her funeral and I promised myself I needed to take my health more serious and I was going to go to that doctor. And I went to see a doctor and he said, you need to get a colonoscopy and a mammogram. And I did the mammogram first. And I was on my way to vacation in Florida. In Charlotte, they have those vans. You can just go to a van. And, and so I stopped in on my way to the airport, got the mammogram, didn't think anything else of it. I get to Florida. I'm getting ready to step on the airport on the elevator at the hotel and my phone rings and they go, we found something you need to come back tomorrow. And it's like, well, that might be a little difficult. I'm in Florida. So I went that following Monday and they did a sonogram and I was lucky they were able, the doctor, they were able to do a needle biopsy at the same time. And once they did the sonogram, I knew I could see it myself on the sonogram. And then in, uh, that was on a Monday and I had to go back on a Thursday, which was my mother's birthday, January 24th. And that's when they told me it was triple negative breast cancer. What was your reaction? How did it feel 
in your body? I was kind of in shock, but I, it was fortunate being in Charlotte because um, I was the, the clinic I was with right then and there when the doctor gave me the diagnosis, they had what was called a nurse navigator who came in and interpreted everything the doctor said. She set up the appointments with the surgeon. She got me the oncologist. Up until like three years ago, she called every few months to check on me. Wow, that's wonderful though. That's just wonderful. And everybody at the station was great because I didn't want to sit around the house, the apartment, and just feel sorry for myself. So I was able to work part-time. So I would still direct the six o'clock news and then go home and rest through all my chemo and radiation. I'd have chemo. Normally I'd take Fridays off and I'd have chemos on that Friday. And then I have the weekend to recover and go back to work Monday and I'd direct the early newscasts. So it kept my mind working. So you've been cancer free for nine years. Wow. Congratulations. That's awesome. It's a big sisterhood. I met a lot of ladies in Charlotte. Um, Laura Renner is a really big, uh, she has uh, Promax uh, is the name of the fundraising team. And Susie Bell, um, our surgeon, Dr. Evans, had a group of triple neg and breast cancer, and it was a support group. And I had them all at the TV station at one time. Wow. And not many people had heard of Triple Neg. And Laura started a support group. I was one of the first ones. And I think the first meeting, there were 15 of us. By the time I left, there were 150 women as part of the group. And I'm sure it's grown even more since. And there were people coming from all over. Because it's a little known breast cancer and the reason I had to do the chemo and the radiation is with triple negative breast cancer, there was a 80% chance it would come back in five years if you didn't do the chemo and radiation. And so I'm nine years out. So a true blessing. When you say support, I don't know what that looks like. What did you find to be most helpful that women in the group knew about? Most people don't know how to be supportive. Just what you're going through, dealing with the hair loss, upset stomach, um, being tired. Uh, They did a thing, even though I didn't partake, it was called Look Good, Feel Better, where they teach you how to put makeup on and how to wear your scarves or hats or different things like that. And it was just nice to get together with other women who were in different stages of the same disease and you could ask a question. And that's one of the things when you become, when you're, when you're a cancer survivor is when I got diagnosed, there was a friend of mine here in Opelika and I told her about my diagnosis. She said, okay, meet me at Fountain Square in Opelika. There's a big fountain in the city park. And we sat there and she goes, okay, the doctors are going to tell you this. That's bullshit. This is what you need to do. And like, um, just, all kinds of different things. And Lori was able to help me. So now whenever I hear about someone with a diagnosis, like there's some friends up at the lake this weekend and she just found out 
she has cancer and is going through chemo and I was able to give her little things like ginger candy helps if you get an upset stomach and uh, make sure protein shakes and drink lots of water and where to get good scarves and I don't know if you're Stuart, but when I started losing my hair, I um, shaved my head at the TV station. I had Tim Dixon, who had been my audio guy for a long time. He'd left to go to Queens College, and Tim came back and shaved my head for me. And it was great because, like, Dion was there, uh, who was one of our anchors, Chris um, Clark, the sports guy, Rachel, the producer. Chris Campbell, one of the directors, my friend Michelle, they were all there to support me and get it done. And that's another thing you talk to people about. Like for me, it was depressing when the hair was coming out, but by owning it and shaving my head, I took control of it. And I knew it was a step. It was going to happen. And the quicker my hair was gone, the quicker it could grow back. So taking some of the power away and and driving it yourself. And I um uh one of the guys videotaped it and I have it up on my YouTube channel. And whenever friends ask, well, ladies, it's like, what am I gonna do about my hair? I go, well, here's what I did, and I show them the video because there was such a relief when every time you put your hand in your hair, clumps would come out to be able to just fully scratch your head and not have to worry about it. And to know that was something behind me and, and we were moving forward. So the other thing that was so meaningful for me as uh, my little brother was the assistant athletic director of media relations at Ole Miss. And he knew I needed something to keep my spirits up. So he was involved with a lot of the different coaches in the SEC and he got them all to send me hats. And the first hat I got was an autographed hat from Nick Saban. Oh my word. And then all the Ole Miss coaches, Auburn University coaches. And it kind of, every time they would do it, I said, knew when I came home, there was something in the mailbox every day. And then one of our good friends, Bonnie, who was it, Bonnie was it with us at Bonnie CNC and then yeah. News Channel, heard about it. And she got me one from Brian Williams. Oh, my word. And he signed a hat. Robin Roberts signed a hat. By the end of it, I think I had a hundred, I have 183 different hats. The guys from Duck Dynasty, the entire cast, nobody knows who that is. Oh, Hulk Hogan sent me a hat. Uh, I have the um, Manning Trifecta with the Ole Miss connection. I have uh, Eli, Peyton, Archie, and Cooper. I have hats signed from all four of them. And one of Jay's former players was on the Kansas City Chiefs. So I have a football signed by the Kansas City Chiefs. And I still have all those hats. It was just great every day. You know, I had my cousin from Israel sent me a hat. A friend um, teaches Russian studies at West Point. All his Russian students signed it. Another friend was teaching English in Korea. His Korean students signed it and sent it to me. So it was just a real, something like that just helps you get through the day because you know you've got something to look forward to. 
I would wear them because they gave them to me. I didn't care. I went bald. I had no problem being bald all the time. So in the summer, it was hot. It didn't bother me in the least. So, Well, so. I remember you didn't take that much of any time off. No. I didn't want to be at home by myself just staring at the walls with the cat. So Stu, um, what was Stu's last name? Our general manager? Powell. Yes. He probably wasn't supposed to, but I was able to still take family leave and then still work part-time. So it, it was a, it was good for me because I got to still be around people and everybody at the station knew what I was going through and they were just so supportive that it was like another family. So it was good and I'm over it and I'm able to help other people. Seeing you go through that and being in the workplace, it was really um, inspiring. Like you didn't have, we didn't say, oh, you go away, you're sick. You know, I mean, it was, it was great. It was like, and everybody was cheering for you. Uh, and then I remember when you got the all clear, what a celebration it was that everybody was, there was just such a sense of relief. It was, it was great. It was great. I was, I, I was, I was meant to be in Charlotte at that time. So the, my oncologist was wonderful and I'm still friends with a lot of people I worked with. Well, it's like when you go through continuous coverage or weather, it's like you might bicker and fight, but you're all working towards the same goal and you've accomplished something. So when you go something like that, you feel closer to people and I always liked you as a person, Virginia. I always, I always enjoy our conversations. I just, I always, I always, it's a lot of fun being around you. I mean, you're a very social kind of a person. I could be a bitch when I needed to be. <laughs> you know. That's very so. funny. Tell me the story. There was a guy um, who wanted to work at the TV station and we were trying to teach him like to give cues. Bless his heart, he was shy. And we were, we told him, you know, count people in and, and wave your arm. And we were showing him and he just barely moved his arm. I said, strap on some balls and wave your arm like you mean it. And the poor <laughs> child never showed up again. So he wasn't cut out for you. You gotta be direct. So. Well, you know, People are going to say things in the heat of a moment that they, you know, wouldn't normally say, but you can say things like that and then go out and have a beer and be friends afterwards. So it's the nature of the beast or it was, especially when there are so many people working for a common goal, you know. Why did you keep going back to Opelika? It's just my roots and something special about this town. I mean, a town that, accepted my dad and and my mom um started she was the first art teacher in the city of opelika and um started the arts association here and just friends and family and it, it it's always been home i would always leave but i always come back so and trying to make it a better city it's really grown a lot. I think mom and dad would be surprised with all the things that are 
going on now or downtown is getting is vibrant and a lot of industry coming in and it's a, it's a neat town your father was a walking chamber of commerce and you have sort of taken up that mantle it seems to me well i am on that's one of the many when i moved back um i got asked to be on a lot of boards so i'm on the board of the chamber of commerce i'm on the board for the Museum of East Alabama. I'm on the board for the Easter Seals Achievement Center. I'm on the State Easter Seals Board. I'm on the Historic Preservation Society Board. What else? The Women's Philanthropic out of Auburn University Board. And then my brother and I have a, um, a family foundation the Henry J. Stern Family Foundation. And in dad's will, he set up a, the foundation and told us to do good for Opelika. So we bought a block and turned it into a park and gave it to the city. And across the street from that, there was a old church um, and uh, a garage and then another building. And we bought all three buildings and we've turned that into the Opelika Art House. H-A-U-S, so it's art for mom and house for dad. And it's a studio space that can be rented for teaching classes or shows. And then the garage, we converted into two studios and we have working artists there. And the third building, phase three, we're 75% through with. It's going to be five more studios for artists to rent space. And it's nominal rent just trying to get arts in the community. So do things to help the town. You know, so often people feel like they have to go to the big city for to make it or whatever. And uh, I feel like not enough is said to celebrate the rich life of, you know, small cities and small towns. Um, but I think exactly. that a lot of people with COVID are starting to rediscover uh, places like Chattanooga, um, right. uh, Asheville, Durham, but also- Macon, Georgia. Right, and places like Opelika, you know, that are, um, you're very close to a major university. And so you benefit from the culture and the education that spills over into your town. It's a great little town. Yeah. We've got a lot going on. We're getting ready to have a big songwriters festival. And believe it or not, in Opelika, Alabama, the headliners are the Indigo Girls, Ricky Lee Jones. I forget who some of the others, but it's a three-day music festival here in downtown Opelika in October. That's something I'd be interested in. Come on down, Stuart. I've already got my ticket. <laughs> I think it's awesome that you're so involved. I enjoy it. It's it's nice. It's fun. It's fun giving back and getting involved and helping out with the community. Do you call yourself retired? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But it's funny because I'm now busier doing things with meetings than I was when I was working. So, And you know how it is in TV, at least for me, working that second shift, going in at 2.45, 3 o'clock and not getting up till midnight. It was hard to have a social life. 
and you have the lake house. You got, that's a nice lake. It's a beautiful lake. Lake Martin is fabulous. It's um, the largest man-made lake in the state of Alabama. It's huge. Beautiful. And it's how far away? 40 minutes. Oh, so you could commute. I mean, when I was living in Charlotte, that was from one side of the town to the other. Right. It'd be like living on Lake Norman. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you can get away to it or what kind of puppy dog you got? An old English bulldog. Her name is Pip. Princess Penelope Pip Squeak Stern. (laughs) Spoiled rotten. I love it. If we get struck by lightning today and the only thing that survives is this little piece of audio, what is your legacy? Gosh, that's a good question, Stuart. That I cared about Opelika. (laughs) Gave back to the city. Gave more than I took. Who would speak at your memorial? Who's like, who's the best friend or the family member? I'm not going to have a memorial. I think... What I did speaks for itself. I don't I don't need a big, you know. Who'll be quoted in the newspaper? I have no idea. All right. I'll put Maybe it to you brother. this way. The Powerball is at 400 million right now. If you hit the Powerball today, who do you know well enough that you would trust them to tell them that you had just hit the Powerball? My friend Margaret Mayfield, who's an attorney. <laughs> I met her, did I not? You did meet Margaret and, and her husband, Carlos. And she's a, like a prosecutor, right? Uh, she's in the DA office. She's in the district attorney's office. Yeah. Healthy respect for, for Margaret. What do yeah. you think she would say if the newspaper asked her about your legacy? What do you think she would say? Gosh, Stuart, this is a hard question. I don't know. Oh, well, what would she say? What I loved about Virginia was... Well, first of all, she'd call me Ginger. (laughs) What I loved about Ginger was... Why do you all get along so well? Strong alpha females. Virginia Stern, you are very blessed to have friends like that. And I don't think that occurs by accident. I think it comes from being a good friend. Possibly. I am very grateful. I thank God that you're my friend. And I thank God you're my friend too, Stuart. Thank you, Ginger, Virginia. You'll always be Virginia to me. I hope someday we'll be able to see We'll Meet Again, the musical, on stage somewhere, regional theater somewhere. Who knows? We'll Meet Again. Fascinating family, intergenerational story linking the escape from the Holocaust, the diaspora, to the Deep South. Thank you, my friend. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp Miller are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins & Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. 
If you want exclusive member merch like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks.